0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is Galatians 2, 11 through 14 But when Cephas went, came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face, because he stood condemned. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Catherine. Hello, good morning. My name is Stacy Croft, and I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church on Music Row, and I would love to meet you if I haven't already. I'd love to grab coffee or lunch with you, and uh, hopefully if you're new here, um, you put your email down in that black book, or just grab me afterwards, or you can find my email address just on the website. I'd love to get to know you better. Well, uh, maybe some of you who are new, or maybe those of you who've been here a number of years have heard me either say this or notice the plaque that's out front, in front of where we get to worship, but... Um, on April 25th, 1957, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke right here from where I'm standing. And uh, really cool um, opportunity. In fact, he was uh, something is not on the plaque, but he was, I think, supposed to speak at Vanderbilt, uh, but because of security issues and other things, Scarrett Bennett Center, which is not owned by Vanderbilt, some may think it is, it's not at all, said, hey, we would love to have you. So he came over here and spoke in this chapel from this spot. And the, the, the speech that he gave was on the role of the church in facing the nation's chief moral dilemma. And he was really trying to draw out, and you can find this, which is actually kind of tough to find a lot of his speeches, but this speech in particular was difficult and it did a lot of digging. And you can see kind of the PDF that they have, the pictures of it in old uh, type font. And, uh, but what he really digs into is a lot of uh, the speech particularly here is, Um, All of the advances we've made, you know, all the ways that we have moved forward in technology, all the ways that we have uh, as a, a culture seem to be ahead of things, but yet when it comes to the way we treat one another, we are way behind, major division. And he talked about human relations and the Christian faith. What I thought was interesting is reading on in there. It gave some dialogue of those who were in the crowd. One in particular who came in uh, to thank him after his speech, after he had stepped down. And this is what Dr. King said to him: "It seems to me that we must do more of this type thing if we are to solve the tremendous problem that faces us in the South. I still have faith in the church and the Christian ministry." And if the problem is solved, the church must stand at the forefront of the struggle. The church must stand at the forefront of the struggle. It wasn't even speech, it was something you just said afterwards. Look, I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Some of you I may know, some of you I may not. I don't know where you are in your faith. But what I do know is, when Dr. King said that, he was not speaking just in the 50s, he was speaking now. And here's the thing, we just read a passage... That really describes a lot of divisions that are happening in the church in that time period not just the 50s but in the 50s not 1950s 50s this letter was written in the late 40s early 50s AD and you can see the same divisions going on there and the divisions are this is it enough to simply believe in the gospel. Regardless of what race, what social background, regardless of what economic background you have, is it enough to be included in the church and actually have relationships with one another? Or is it one of those things where we say, yeah, you're admitted to this table, to these, in these doors, but really when we leave here, we just treat each other nice. I mean, is the church just another place where... You know, all the divisions that we see, not just in the 50s, not just in the 1950s, but in today's culture. Is the church just another place where division happens? Or is this actually supposed to be the place where it shows healing of any division? Is this where it begins? And that's what Paul is getting at here. He So much so that we actually get to read him writing about a public conflict with Peter, St. Peter, the The guy. This is the conflict, and he oppo- it says he opposes him to his face. That is how big it is that we need to confront the issue of division. Division that anything, anything can come in. Any little speck of dust can, can settle in that crack and create more of it. And the thing that will heal it in the church is the gospel, the good news, to bring us realigned. So that the church doesn't become another place, just like any other place in your day, where the divisions happen. Where people just kind of play nice. You come here, you sing songs, this is that time of year, maybe even you're back in church after a long period of time. You're kind of thinking, man, this is that time of year I love. But when I leave here, the songs are playing in the mall, but I really could care less about the people around me. Or is this the time, the moment, the place when we understand the good news came to us so we can't help but live it outside of these doors. That's what Paul's getting at. And there are two things that he really addresses in this passage, this short passage. One is our fear. He just acknowledges the fear. He talks about Peter's fear. We get to see Peter up, up close and personal in this, which I always love. Seems like Peter seems to get the, the brunt of things, even being the, one of the lead apostles. <clears throat> and I'm so grateful for that, <laughs> even though I'm sure he wasn't. And yet, the other side of that is the truth. What heals us? What changes us? The truth. So let's acknowledge our fear. What is the fear? And let's see the fear in this passage, but let's also see how the truth sets us in line with the gospel. You know, as you read this, we are, again, reminding you, even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you may hear of Peter, Saint Peter, you hear his name, uh, maybe you come from a different religious background, uh, Peter is one of the greatest inner circle of the three closest to Jesus on this rock, Jesus says, na- renaming Peter, his name actually means rock, On the church on him and the apostles. And yet in this passage, what we see is anything but him being a rock. We see him being shifting sand. (laughs) We see nothing here of him being just this. You think rock, renamed by Jesus himself, you are the rock. And yet all you see here is this beginning of wishy-washiness. What is going on? What's happening here in this passage is that, again, as a reminder, Paul set this church up. He, He founded this church. He said this is... This church in Galatia, this is what it's built upon, but these people came behind him to say, Well, Paul, you're, you really don't have the right credentials. You're really not teaching the right gospel. We need to kind of add things to it to to reassess what you've done and kind of help that out. And so what was happening is Paul went to people who didn't know anything about Judaism at all, Gentiles. In fact, that's pretty much all us in this room, anybody who is not Jew. They came in and said, you know what, you really need to start taking on Jewish custom you need to be circumcised. That's why you see circumcision party here. You need to take on these rituals, customs, traditions that are of Judaism in order for you to then make it through the finish line of saying, yes, and now I'm a Christian. And that's what Paul is fighting against. He's saying, no, 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 no. That is a division. That is wrong. But look, notice here what happens. He opposes him to his face because he stood condemned. For the before, before certain men came from James, that is another apostle, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That is, this faction of people who are saying, "You got to take on these traditions." They may not have been a big party, but they were loud. They were really loud. And so, think about this for a second. Let, let's stop just for a moment and take in the realization of what's going on here. Peter the apostle who believes in the gospel, who followed Jesus, who denied him three times, and yet is brought back into the fold, is the very one here who is trying to keep himself preserved because he's afraid of this group whose voice is loud, saying, you have to take this on to be a Christian. And he, we've got to think about that for a second. He's fearing this. But it's not just that he's afraid of them. It's not that he's afraid. But this is he's falling back into a custom, into a, a point, into a part of his life where it felt comfortable to keep himself in and others out, to keep people at a distance. Walker Percy, when he wrote about Southern tradition and Southern, who's a great Southern writer, he wrote uh, in a book uh, called uh, Signposts in a Strange Land. He described life in the South in terms of familial spaces, right? He said the pleasant familial space as opposed to the public sector. In other words, he was talking about living in comfort yet with great hypocrisy, not really being willing to call things what they were. It means sitting in the comfort of that. This is not, it would be easy to pick on Peter for a moment. But like what Walker Percy is drawing out in, that, in, in what we really see, he's actually settling back into what he thinks is right or normal. He's, he's settling back into what has been before. In fact, the word for fear here is shrinking away. Some commentators say it. it says that he shrunk away. He found a comforting place. He shrunk away in order to preserve himself. And don't you, don't you feel that in those moments? When, when there are those moments where maybe you're face to face with some sort of voice, party, people, whatever it is that confronts you about whether you're a Christian or maybe you're in a certain space. Maybe there's a struggle that you have in in some, some political reference or party and you find yourself shrinking away from certain people or groups in order to preserve yourself, but it's just a normal routine. It's almost falling back into that space that you've been in, that we've grown up in, knowing that just these kind of divisions are are what we live in, right? We minimize the conflict. We minimize the, and, and we've learned very well in Southern tradition to be nice about that. We'll be nice. But that way we don't have to really interact. We minimize the cost, the the conflict, any sort of shrapnel that may come from anything of us interacting. We're just going to kind of separate a little bit. And that's his fear. Deep in his heart, it's the fear of, do I really belong? This is testing Peter to ask the question again, am I really a part of this or is this normal? He's, He's caught. And Paul has to call him on it. Because here's what happens, he draws back. I posed him to his face, it says, for before certain men uh, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. That is, Peter was acting in line with the gospel. He was eating with the Gentiles. He was doing those things that he really struggled with doing, and yet, when they came, he separated himself. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Because that's where fear does. Isn't it, the beginning of our fear begins to separate us in order that we don't have to interact. It sounds so middle school. It sounds so like what we're used to. Gosh, that person, I see them and they make me uncomfortable, so I'm gonna kinda keep my distance. Maybe I'll say hi, maybe not. You see them in Target, you see them across the way, and you kinda think, I I call those the Sasquatch moments. You ever have those? You see that person, it's like you saw a Sasquatch. There they are. Like, you didn't think the person that you like, hate on Instagram or that you follow or whatever, or you used to be friends with and you see them someplace, and all of a sudden, all those things rush back and you go, how do I react? Am I going to be nice? Am I going to talk shop? How do I deal with this, right? But all the while, your fear wants you to what? Separate. And we've been doing this since the beginning. What happened in the garden? Immediately in the beginning of the Bible, when sin, that is, that That relationship breach between God and man, what happens? It's a separation, not only between God and man, but man and man. They begin to clothe themselves. They can't look at even each other naked, and shame enters, and they have to separate. It's separation. It's deeply ingrained, and so deeply ingrained, again, to pick on Peter, uh, it'd be easy to pick on Peter, but look, this is deep in his bones, right? Right? For us to look at this and go, Peter, just eat with them. Now, l- l- hold on just a sec. Let's, let's ask, why does he not want to? Now, notice this. Before we even got to this point, God was working on Peter's heart to show this. In Acts chapter 10, which Acts is a book of like, narrative accounts of these apostles, which is really a good... If you're ever reading the Bible and need help, take the book of Acts, which is this narrative account, and look at these letters, and you can correspond... These, the lives of these people with the writings of Paul and Peter and others. It's really, really cool to see. And one of those accounts, those narrative accounts in Acts chapter 10 is this. God gives Peter a vision about how to understand when people are brought in. He, he, he does this. Listen. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And we be, when he became hungry... He wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice from him to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might have meant, behold, men who were sent by Cornelius, that is Gentiles, non-Jews, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate immediately. What is God already doing before we even get to this? God is trying to unwind something that's so deeply ingrained, and here it is. They had laws upon laws about even being near Gentiles. The Pharisees themselves, if you read about these, some of these accounts in the, in, the, uh, <clears throat> in the Gospels, that if a Gentile, if you were eating at a table and a Gentile walked past you, a non-Jew, someone who is not of Jewish anything, walked by you, and their shadow passed over your utensils, you could not use them because they were unclean. Peter is reacting to something that's so ingrained in him, so he's used to this, so much so. So before we look at Peter and go, God, just eat with them, dude, come on. God is having to unwind something that is so deep within him that Peter himself can't do it. And this is why he has to act different. This is why it's hypocrisy, right? Because this circumcision party may not be a huge group, but its voice is loud enough to tap into that little fear in him to make him separate. And isn't this exactly where we go? I mean, I remember talking to somebody a few years ago. and Not here, this is before our church even started, but somebody mentioning to me, man, I, I could never say to people in my church that I'm a Democrat because I think I would just be totally ousted. What kind of fears do we have in our church? I could never really act in that way. I could be nice to people maybe of a different race that come in church, I can talk about those things. But when it comes to being outside of here, I'm really, really uncomfortable with that. And so we just settle in what's ingrained. And we think that we can defeat division by adding laws and rules and social construct. What, what gets to the heart of it? What gets to the heart of our separation? Look, and it's not only that, it's infectious. Did you even read this? In, in verse 13, if you read this, it says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray. This isn't something that's just, oh, separation, it's just in all of us. It. It's infectious. Once one of us does it, we all see it, and we feel like it's okay because we're so used to it. We fall back into it. It's infectious. If we really think the church is going to be on the cusp of healing racial issue, we have to stop settling into the things that make us comfortable and ask why. If we're really going to address poverty in our city, if we're really going to address huge issues that are going on around us. Slave trade. In our city, there is sex trafficking in our city, one of the big cities. If we're addressing things like that, if we're addressing things that... uh, How about just the people you see in Target? How about the people you see in this room? What is going to stop our division? isn't us having a pep rally. It's gonna be proclaiming the truth of the gospel that gets into where the infection happens deep down here. Ann Lamont said this so well. She said, you can be sure you've created a God, and we sang a song about idols, like going to our idols that embrace us, what a great line. Anne Lamont said this, she said, you can be sure you've created a God in your own image, when you make God hate all the same people you do, do you put yourself do I put myself how do we put ourselves in a position to justify oh yeah I can be, I can hate that person, God probably does too because of we have to get to the root of it, and what does it it 's the truth it 's the truth, only the truth comes into the fear truth of us belonging to this king. Notice Paul says this. He says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, <clears throat> came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He had to see it. What does Paul do? Simple. He opposes him to his face because so he, he, he stood condemned. Notice he doesn't say, so I could condemn him. He stood condemned. It means the truth is a mirror. It means we need to step up and show each other how we're actually out of step with the gospel. We need to be able to see it. And and, and the first question we need to ask is, do we have people in our life that actually show us that? Or that we allow to show us that? Or does everybody around us simply tiptoe around it or tell us what we wanna hear? What kind of world do we create to do that? One of the greatest Things my uh, wife has taught me is that if someone has something in their teeth or something on their sweater, uh, if it's something you can fix, you tell them, right? But if they can't fix it, you kind of back away slowly. Because you can't, if you tell somebody, "Hey, you got really a bad haircut," I mean, what are they going to do? You know, like, right? But if you have something in your teeth, I hope somebody tells me that, right? If your fly's open, if your sweater's off, if there's something on your back. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, you hope somebody tells you, right? Here's the difference between the gospel and, and that kind of thing. Not only should we tell each other what's off, we should tell each other what's off that we can't fix because we ourselves are sitting in the same spot. We can't fix it either. It's not that Paul goes to Peter and say, look how great I'm doing. He opposed him to his face, not behind his back, not to Barnabas and say, Barnabas, can you believe what Peter's doing? He doesn't go to the Gedeiters, what does he do? He goes to Peter himself, the apostle, to oppose him and say, let me show you how you are wrong. And this is something you can't just fix on your own. Because I know, I can't fix it either. It's the rule of the gospel. It shows us we have to see it. And here's what it says here. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth. The word not in step is the word ortho. It's exactly what you think. Orthodox. Or for those of us in here that may have this profession, orthodontist, right? Ortho, meaning bring straight aligning. And we need to have people in our lives that show us that. What the gospel is, the truth is to realign us and it doesn't feel good all the time. And it's messy and it's painful. Sometimes for long periods of time, I don't know how many of you still wear a retainer or some sort of Invisalign or whatever it is you like, what's your choice? I was just talking to somebody this morning, I can't remember who it was, about braces. We were talking about, uh, oh yeah, it was JD. JD and I were talking about having headgear and braces. And I don't know if you remember these moments where they would go in and, and your teeth would settle and you'd go in for your next appointment and they would just tighten those puppies and clip off the wires in the back and you'd for the next week were like, oh. I mean, every bite of food, it didn't matter what it was. And then after those braces came off, they're like, you need to wear a retainer. Like, yeah, whatever. And you know what happens? If you go a few days without wearing a retainer and you pop that thing back in, it is hard to get in. Why? Because your teeth start moving around. They unsettle. They become unaligned. Isn't that the point? The truth of the gospel is to pop back in and to realign. It's to realign us with a standard. And it does mean there is one. But here's the the catch. It's not you and it's not me. The standard is the gospel, the good news. It pops back in to show all of us where we are and where we're not in step. And it means that in every part of your life, it's not just one tooth. You got a bunch of them. It means there's every part of your life needs to be realigned with the gospel. What, What is it for you? that when you put that truth up to of the gospel, the good news of who you really are in him, it really hurts and you don't want to do it, so you try and separate But what overcomes that is the truth. It's putting it in, it's taking it on. It's seeing where you have a hard time with people being Republicans or Democrats and being Christian. Or you have a hard time with certain people of a certain race. Or you have a hard time with certain people who are in certain jobs or in certain spaces. Or you have a hard time with that person that you see on Instagram or in Target or in Publix or wherever it may be. It will never be overcome unless you pop that in and be realigned with the truth of who you really are because you drift. And we drift because we think we have the standard. I don't need to have that. Paul had to oppose him to his face. He had to say, "You have to put this back on." Two major giants of theology in uh, the first Great Awakening. We've had a couple of Great awake- things in history called the Great Awakenings in our country, and uh, the first one really dealt with a, a few people who were just amazing preachers. I mean, these people would go into without microphones. They would go into stadium-like uh, atmospheres, and just their voices were so powerful. They would preach, and people would just be like, oh, my word!" Some of their names, like George Whitfield, John Wesley, others like that. But some of them, like George and John particularly, had major conflict the- theologically. And so, as they're preaching to thousands, I mean, sometimes 50 to 60,000 without microphones. Can you imagine that? <clears throat> and people could hear them because they were so powerful. Well, you know, all the while, you can see behind the scenes, people are... Oh, okay. Who has more people? Whose theology is correct? And at one point, they interviewed George Whitfield, and they asked about this conflict. And they said, at once, "Hey, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven?" They're kind of teeing him up. And George Whitfield said, "No." And their and their face kind of went like this. And he said, "Because he will be so close." to the Lord Jesus Christ, that I won't be able to see him at the table. What was governing George's heart in that moment? Was it the theology? Was it the size of the church? Was it the mass of crowds? Was the moment he had publicly? No, what was governing him, probably even in the moments when he did want to say things, and they fought, by the way. (laughs) In the overriding moment, it was he will be closer to Jesus because here's what I'm in line with and so is he. This is what governs us. What goes back on our acting? Isn't that what hypocrisy is? The word hypocrite means actor. What changes us from acting nice goes to the heart of the separation. So if we, if we really know that, it, It's knowing that there's a cost and that we don't pay for it. See, here's the whole point of this. The Judaizers, the people coming in saying, yeah, and this is what he's afraid of, by the way. Peter's afraid of that is being healed by this opposition by Paul is to say, yeah, there's a cost to be a part of this group. But the cost is not you being circumcised. That's that's the real one side of it saying, yeah, you can can belong, but it's going to cost you. But you can belong. And many of us buy that. Oh, I belong, but it'll cost you. You've got to change your personality. You've got to change who you are, change your job, change all this. You, but you can be a part of it. Isn't that what we feel often when we, when I've heard from many of you about even living in Nashville often. Can feel like yeah, it's, people are nice enough to welcome you to Nashville, but not to invite you into their home not to actually be with them. What if if the church was the place that began to transform Nashville so when people came here, they were sad to leave instead of looking for another city that felt more welcoming? What if it's right that we do that? What if the truth of the gospel is the fact that we've been brought in? Here's what Advent is. (laughs) Here's what we're doing when we come to this table. When we come to this table, we're celebrating communion. But what Advent means is an arrival, right? That's what the actual word means, arrival. And, and as we take in the many, you're going to have multiple opportunities to, to come to noonday services and Christmas Eve services. But I'll tell you what, none of it will make a difference, unless you take in the reality of what advent means it means the the true insider the only one who belonged who never felt separated at all from his father actually allowed himself to feel the ultimate separation in order that you would not that you might be brought in that he takes on the full weight of the co- the cost so that you and I can belong. See, that's the difference. This table, there is a standard. Here's the mirror. It's the body and blood, but not your body and blood. And that's what we wish was the standard to come to this table. We wish it was our blood and sweat and tears. Oh God, I'm, I earned it, I can take it. Uh-uh. That's the freedom to come to this table. The gospel good news is that Jesus came, even in his birth, he came in as an outsider, He had outsiders come visit him who were shepherds. He brought every outsider known to man on the inside, and he put himself outside to realign us in every way with the good news of the gospel. C.S. Lewis put it so beautifully when he talked about his relationship to dentists. Have you ever heard this before? he talked about the dentist in this way he said this is what it means to be in him when I was a child I often had a toothache and I knew that if I went to my mother she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me go back to sleep but I didn't go to my mother not at least until the pain became very bad and the reason I did not go was this I didn't doubt that she would give me the aspirin but I knew that she would do something else I knew that she would take me to the dentist the next morning And I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more. (laughs) I couldn't, um, which I did not want. I I wanted immediately relief from the pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth which not had yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took a yard. Now, if I put it this way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he will take a yard. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some particular sin, which they're ashamed of, like daily life, but he won't stop there. If you come to him, he will give you the full treatment. You know, coming to this table means you believe that you're not just coming because you can confess all your sin or that you have one sin. But when you take this in, and the advent itself means that he is setting every part of you, acknowledged or not, permanently right in Christ. We're going to stand in a moment. And as we do, we're going to be reciting from actually a passage in Timothy Or Paul, another place where Paul wrote a letter. And when we do, I want you to take in the words as your confession before the Lord to help you know that coming to this table means you don't have to set yourself right, but you come to this table because you are being set right in him. Let's stand together.